is gay and chilly where they'll take you for a spin. So come on, forget your trouble. Keep your eyes on the skies above. You can always have a double at the female pilot club. Hello and welcome to the Female Pilot Club podcast. If you don't know us, we're a plucky band of lumpy jumpers helping female-written sitcom scripts take off and fly against the almost insurmountable odds of the TV commissioning system. And if you do know us, we're those women at the supermarket checkout fumbling with their carrier bags and dropping their credit cards because they're on the phone trying to book someone for their poncy bloody podcast. Sorry to the man behind me, by the way, if you're listening, but there really was no need for that kind of language. Anyway, on with the show. I'm Wing Commander Case Donham and co-piloting today is proud mum Captain Emily Chase. So, Emily, can the scaly brat walk yet? Well, actually... All right, don't go on about it. We don't want to know and we don't want to bore the very special guest we have for this episode. Producer, radio, TV commissioner, writer and performer, Seanad William. Seanad, thank you so much for being brave and some might say foolish enough to agree to come on the Female Pilot Podcast. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Seanad began her career as a producer for BBC Radio Light Entertainment, working on Weekending and Knowing Knowing Me Knowing You with Armando Iannucci and Steve Coogan. She moved into TV to produce iconic comedies like Game On and Big Train before becoming controller of Comedy ITV, where her credits include 2D TV, The Sketch Show and acclaimed comedy drama Cold Feet. In 2015, she returned to BBC Radio as commissioning editor for comedy for Radio 4, bringing us shows like Alexi Sale's Sandwich Bar, Conversations from a Long Marriage, The Skewer and The Man Next Door. She also commissioned stand-up shows from Sophie Willen, Mae Martin, Deliso Chaponda, Alex Edelman and Jordan Gray. And as if that wasn't enough, she's now writing her fourth novel and finishing her doctorate. She's also our first guest commissioner. So, Seanad, welcome to the Female Pilot Club podcast. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. Seanad, honestly, is there anything you haven't done? Did you um, never... <laughs> quite a lot. <laughs> Did you never think to take a day off, woman? <laughs> well, you're taking one off now, so sit down, lean back in your ejector seat and prepare to give us the hot sauce. Chin, chin, pip, pip, last one to 25,000 feet is a bean stealer. So we at Female Pilot Club know all about what commissioners have to go through, but people on the home front scratching their heads and wondering what the hell we're on about don't. So we thought we'd ask you to give us a very special commissioner version of our parachute pitch. Is that OK? Yeah, absolutely. OK, so the scenario is the plane is going up in flames. There's only one parachute, which a comedy writer is wearing. Obviously, you grab onto his legs as he jumps out of the plane. And of course, he, she or they, but most likely he, <laughs> starts to pitch you his terrible show on the way down. Right. Obviously, you don't want to say no and get kicked off the parachute, so you have to keep him sweet with some hopeful-sounding rejections until you safely hit the ground. Are you ready, Seanad? Reject. I really enjoyed it, but it's probably not broad enough in its appeal. There was much about it to really appreciate. Probably we've got something quite similar in the works already. I wonder whether it was really warm enough. I'm not sure if it was really quite strong enough. I don't know, uh, do you need a stronger female character in it? Or are there too many women in it? Let's be honest. I really enjoyed the writing. I thought there were some really strong lines in it. There was a, a gallery of grotesque characters who I hugely enjoyed. But ultimately, perhaps it was a bit similar to something we've got already. Probably it's not quite right for the channel. But maybe you should try BBC Two and a Half. Do you know what? I think you've said those things to me in the past. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> 
that writer is walking away happy and expecting the call to come for his 12-part series any day. Now, you began your career as a producer for Radio Light Entertainment in 1991, so you must have got your fair share of rejections as a producer, is that right? Well, in fact, it was even earlier, I'm really depressed to say. Um, I started at, in the late 80s um, and... I, it was. I was really fortunate to be on a producer scheme. It was the last producer course, actually, for a month. You got a month's actual training, and then you got shoved in. You didn't really have to pitch so much, to be honest with you. In those days, you got given shows. You know, there was a kind of rote of things like weekending and um, and just a minute, and all these shows. Half of them are still going. Um, and uh, yes, and then later on, I did um, you know pet pitching ideas. It would go to what they used to call the program direction group and there were definitely things I tried to get through believe it or not I tried to get a show with Vic and Bob through in 1990 um yeah and uh, I think they thought it was too weird but I've still got the pieces of paper that they gave to me with the utterly bonkers ideas on it but they were great and it would have been wonderful but that was when we were trying to make shows for Radio 1 I think um but no I think it was, it was incredibly fortunate to be allowed to give it a go in in that turn of the 80s 90s because it was a great time so many new comics and so much excitement you know in the industry so I was very lucky well the next actual question was how did you get such a great first job but I'm not sure what's your first job was it because it was yeah I was an eternal student for years and years and years and did lots of performing and um and then realized that I was never going to finish my doctorate um and saw a job going at the BBC and it was you know um you're allowed to do this producer course which I've talked about and so I applied for it and that was it I just got an interview and I got the job um so was it more convenience in terms of fitting in with the other things you were doing rather than I definitely prefer this compared to performing no it was a genuine need for a salary actually I'd been a student for so long and and I just had a very strong feeling that that behind the microphone was probably more um suited to me and this just seemed like a great job and and it was Dan Patterson who had left the BBC and it was his job I got actually I didn't know him but um yeah I just applied I I saw the job in the Guardian and applied for it but I had done a lot of performing by then and a lot of presenting and stuff in in the Welsh language I'd done lots of radio and stuff um and telly actually now I think about it but as a, a student really but yeah it was the crucial need to earn some money I'm afraid. <laughs> Necessity is the mother of invention. Absolutely, yeah. So for Series 2 of the Female Pilot Club podcast, we have a sponsor. It's Blue Cat Screenplay Competition, who for over 25 years have been discovering and developing storytellers with their annual screenplay competition. It was founded by a writer who has a passion for discovering new talent. Just like us at Female Pilot Club. Indeed. Now, Blue Cat has always hosted a blind competition. So everyone's in blindfolds. No, that will be ridiculous, Emily. What it means is that no demographic data is shared, which ensures that winners are chosen based solely on their scripts and nothing else. Okay, that seems fair. So what kind of scripts do they want? Well, they want feature films, they want TV pilots, and they want shorts. And the great thing is that readers ensure each submission receives constructive feedback. So you definitely know that your script's been read and you can improve your script after the competition. So what do you get if you win it? Well, you get cash, first and foremost, but also winners and finalists have been signed by talent agencies like UTA, CAA and WME. And they sold their work to major studios. So if you're keen to hear more, head to bluecatscreenplay.com to learn about their upcoming competition. Shoop, 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 
Was the BBC radio comedy department very different back then? Well, I wasn't the first woman. Lissa Evans was there at the time and Jan Ravens had been there and Jenny Campbell had been there. And I was shortly followed by people like Diane Messias and Caroline Leddy. It it had already made a big change, I think, by the time I got there. It wasn't Oxbridge-dominated, although clearly there were Oxbridge people there. But there were people like Bill Day, who'd come from Manchester. Um, and, and also, what was really lovely was there were much older people there as well, who'd sort of been there since the 50s, who'd worked with all the great 50s comics. And so it had a, a great atmosphere in the sense that they... The old guards were still very much there, wonderful people like Ted Taylor, but also this new spirit. So Armando and Sarah Smith came, the sort of intake after me, um, and Joan Magnusson. And there was a sort of forward motion as well as a kind of chance to learn a little bit from the past as well. But it was a great place to be. It was very much that old, cosy, supportive, nurturing yeah. BBC. Totally. Yeah. yeah, I was very lucky. Wonderful bosses like Jonathan James Moore and Pete Atkin. Pete Atkin had worked with Clive James for years and years and years. And Jonathan had worked with everyone, really. He was a wonderful man and very kind to me. A real opportunity to work with, you know, Nicholas Parsons, you know, was when I went back to Radio in 2015, who was still there. It was great, but there was an excitement as well about doing new material and working for Radio 1 as well as Radio 4 and Radio 2. I did a lot of shows for. Um, they, I think probably it's changed. The thing that's changed is that there is no in-house department now. There are just BBC Audio or BBC Studios Audio is an independent production company. It's huge, but it isn't really the in-house department anymore. It's not in the same building and they make shows for anyone. You know, so that sense of comedy corridor, I'm afraid, has gone, which I think is a bit sad. But there you go. Mm -hmm. It is. I love the cor comedy corridor. I, mm. It was a lovely time, wasn't it? It really was. What do, do you think people in general understand that differentiation between no. in-house and... I don't think they do. And it's particularly difficult every Christmas when BBC Studios Audio have a Christmas party. And when I was commissioning editor, it used to drive me up the wall. People would say, why haven't I been invited to their party or to your party? And I would explain that it wasn't my party. I was a guest myself. Does that mean it's changed in terms of the way it operates with, like, funding development, for instance? Because when it was in-house, the BBC was often one of the few places where you could get funding for development, wasn't it, of your project? Whereas working with an indie, often you don't get funded for development as a writer, I, I think you? that's true. I, I think they still have more cash than most indies to develop. I, I get the sense that they still have this structure of the programme direction group that they used to have, you know, and that you work with the producer in-house. And they still have access to BBC money and the things like the idea of a script development fund I you know my understanding is they still do put money into development in a way that a lot of indies can't afford to do but it is very different crucially from that that world that I joined at the end of the 80s that felt like something from the 50s really but you obviously were a producer on that legendary show Weekending that's credited with launching the careers of so many successful British comedy writers do you think it was it was a, a great show and do you think it was a good way of finding the best talent that was out there what do you think about it I think it was also all of those things really it could be great it could be terrible it could be partly good it could be um mostly good uh, essentially it was a fantastic way of developing new producers and new writers I learned so much doing it 
um, because writing sketches is very difficult, particularly about the news and creating topical sketches that actually had great comic ideas at their heart or ca- memorable characters that they created. Then there were the news lines, which were wonderful because it meant that people from all over um, the country would send those in. There was a fantastic couple called Bob and Barbara Bolton who worked in the NHS, I think, in the north of England, and then one day appeared... And we were so excited to meet them because they used to get news lines on every week, even though they weren't professional writers. But no, I think it was. And, you know, the roll call of people who learnt through weekending is so huge. So um, just for those of us who don't know what weekending was. It's a bit like Dead Ringers okay. is now. Um, but not. And there were impressions, actually. It was a, a slightly more sort of staid version of Dead Ringers, but not always. It depended on the generation writing it. It was started in the 60s. And I think the first producer was Simon... Um, Simon Brett and David Simon, Hatch. Yeah, Simon Brett and David Hatch started it. And it was the era, that was the week that was, and sort of satire. And then, you know, there was a, a Falklands era when I remember my husband Ian was writing an awful lot of it and Guy Jenkin and Andy Hamilton. Basically everyone who wanted to work at Comedy Corridor gave it a go. Didn't suit everyone. A lot of people didn't like doing topical comedy, so they might move. There were people who did the headlines instead on Radio 2, which was a kind of more whimsical piece and, and played to the strengths of the wonderful June Whitfield and Roy Hurd and Chris Emmett. You I liked think... an innuendo, the headlines was for you, yes, wasn't it? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Whereas Weekending wasn't. But yeah, it was, and you know, it was as good as the crop of writers that were working on it at the time, really. So your next job was producing Jonathan Ross's chat show. Um, was the transition to TV an easy one? And did you have a preference once you'd tried both? Um, I like both. I still like both enormously. Um, it was it was a bit fraught because it was uh, a sort of rather a chaotic programme. And uh, unfortunately, it wasn't the great... My husband used to work on a show called The Last Resort, which was, I think, possibly the, the greatest thing that Jonathan did. It was the very early series um, where it was so inventive. They did it from pubs. They did it from people's front rooms. And it was a genuinely exciting series. By the time I worked on it, I, it was a three nights a week Channel 4 show. And... You, it was in the era when there were lots of chat shows. So there was there was Aspel, um, there was Wogan, and we were very much at the end of the queue. So we went from being kind of groovy to being it was all a bit difficult really to get guests and three we nights live. a week is a lot. Three nights a week, yeah. I mean, I had some great fun on it, and Jonathan was fantastic and very easy to work with. But I it, it, I was quite glad to leave it after I think I did six months or something on it, and and then moved back into doing sitcoms and things. But live TV was brilliant. I absolutely loved doing live TV. That was really good fun. Um, Is that just because it's exciting? Oh, it's exciting. And it's, you know, it's so fun. We got great musical guests because Steve Naive, Jonathan's wonderful band leader, just everybody wanted to work with him. So Ronnie Spector came and sang Bye Bye Baby. And it was that trendy end of chat shows, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I I don't think it was as good as as the stuff that, that he'd done before. And in fact, I think he only did it for another series. And then he got bored, I think, and moved on to other stuff. And according to your CV, by 1999, you were controller of ITV, a comedy. Now, that sounds like a really fast life. Did it, is it just in your CV it feels like that? Did it feel <laughs> fast? Done Big Train, I think, and Game On by then. Again, I seem to remember I, they, they approached me and asked me, I, I think I wasn't their first choice, I'll be brutally honest here. I think I was about the 25th choice. I think they'd been around everybody in comedy. And I have a feeling that I w- was out of work. 
And ah, now I remember, I think I said no to start with thinking, oh, I hate the idea of being a commissioning editor. I'd rather produce something. And then I went up for a job and I didn't get it. And they came back and said, would you reconsider? And at that point, I was thinking, I'll do anything. So um, I, I said, um, oh, well, I th- oh, yes, I could probably reconsider. If you, But in fact, I then went to work for David Lidiment, who I adored working for. He was just fantastic boss and he he'd come up through coronation street and granada and he was very he had great um ambition for itv and it was great working for him for two years he was wonderful and but i was also desperately trying to have a baby at the time and going through ivf and he was really supportive and kind and when i finally managed after 11 long years of trying to have a baby um he really helped with things like maternity leave and because, in fact, he was leaving. <laughs> he rang me when I was in labour to say he'd resigned, which is not what you want to hear when you're in labour. And um, it was a shame, actually, because then it wasn't quite the same after that. And I kind of went back part time and then it sort of petered out a bit. But he was fantastic to work for. And I did lots of things like single films there. And we did the sketch show. Mm-hmm. There was, In fact, when I was about to have my baby, um, we won both comedy BAFTAs, I remember, which was unheard of for ITV to win a comedy BAFTA. And we went for Cold Feet and the Sketch Show. Um, but not that the press even noticed that the, the received wisdom was that it was still a terrible place for comedy. And that was quite tough. Working with the press was tough. They really didn't like the idea of ITV being good at comedy. Yeah, what's that about? I mean, I'm, I was looking at it thinking, know. God, that was a great time for comedy for yeah. ITV, wasn't it? Yeah, and 2D TV was fantastic. Yeah. You know, uh, George Michael loved the portrayal of him so much he used the wonderful Giles Pilbrough, whose baby it was, to do a documentary for Walk the Dog, the single Walk the Dog. Um, And we did two or three series of 2D TV, and I was really proud of that. It was really strong satire, written by very good satirical writers. And, and yeah, we did the sketch show, which I thought was great fun, with Lee Mack and Ronnie Ancona and uh, Tim Vine, and lots of single films then with people like Jack D and and written by people like Simon Nye and Tim Firth and really good strong comedy writers um but it was tough you know and also commercially it's very hard to keep anything on a channel like ITV they get after they get antsy after a few weeks if it's not rating and so it's very tough environment to work but i then left to become a, a mum to be honest with you i was 41 and i was really just so grateful to be a mother I wanted to spend some time at home with my son you know and and didn't go back into production till I don't I think he was about five or six actually I did a bit of this and a bit of that you know but I really wanted the I knew I wasn't going to get another chance and I was just so grateful I just wanted to be a mum for a while you know Um, and I feel quite honest about that because I think so many women you know, you've got to be everything. You've got to be a brilliant producer. You've got to be brilliant. You know, you can't, actually. It's really hard. <laughs> so if you... you I was going to say, I, it's really important that I think that you just said that. Well, very important. I felt it very yeah. strongly. You know, I just thought, I want this chance, you know. And I mean, people used to laugh, you know, because I would do everything. I'd go to the park. I was the most enthusiastic member of the PTA, <laughs> you know. So I'm so grateful to be there, having been out of the club, you know, mm. for such a long time. I think to yeah. to be okay with saying that though, you know, and not worry about what's going to happen afterwards is also mm. is really important. I had a really similar conversation with someone very recently who was not feeling like perhaps that they could say, "Oh, actually, I think I'd quite like to just be a mum until she's in school, and then I'd like to come back." And then when she'd spoken to her work, they actually said before she'd said anything, just so you know, you know, you can come back in three years. Don't yeah. rush yourself. Yeah. And 
that just gave her then the license to actually do what she wanted, whereas she'd been so stressed about it before. I think that's such a good point. I mean, I think the workplace has to be better about women. You know, it's not listen, it's not for everyone. Some people really don't want to be at home with their kids, and that's fine too. But I did, and I had to just say I won't work. You yeah. know, I was lucky I had a husband who was working, so I had the luxury of being able to do that, which not everyone does. Mm. Um, but... Yeah, there should be, but it, it is it is what it, it's horses for courses, you know. For it's what women want to do. I think they shouldn't be pressurised one way or the other. No, exactly. To do it. Everyone's different, yeah. but they should be allowed to do it if they want to. As you say, there's that pressure to do everything, but all at once, isn't it? Yeah, you know, you can do everything, but why do you have to do everything all the time? Well, it was Nicola Horlick. I remember she was everywhere at the time, and and she, you know, and, they, and people, there were a whole load of them, and they had a fleet of nannies, and they were very wealthy, so they could afford to do all this, and they were running multinational companies. And she was one of those women who made other people feel terrible. She had five children, didn't she? And was a well, hugely I think, successful. Well, to be fair, she was trying to say you can you know because men don't have to give it all up obviously yeah. when they have their kids and I yeah. think she was basically saying with a lot of help because she was quite mm. honest I think mm. about all her nannies and stuff and she was very very rich to be fair to her she didn't intend to do that of course but you know that was the feeling wasn't it that you thought oh my god well there was a lot of com- conversation wasn't there about having it all and being able to, and it's, yeah. it's exactly what you said Kay really which is why do you have to do it all at the same time yeah, I can remember, obviously, I was an actress when I had Buster and Rosie. And um, I, thought, I can remember that terror of when you get in for an audition and they say, well, what have you been doing? Yeah. And you know you've got to say, I've just had a baby a little while ago. You know, and the glazed look yeah. in the eyes. Yeah. It was really, I don't know if it's as bad now, is it? Because Emily's got a, a scaly brat, haven't you? What's yeah, the, I don't think so. Are you going to let me talk about him now? No. Wow. How old, I, I Emily? I think a year and a half. At Christmas, but like, no, I think I think it has changed actually because yeah. I think I think I was always worried, predictably, like, oh, when do you do it? When is the right time? There's never a right time. But actually, it ended up being in lockdown, and actually, I've had I had a job right before it, and then one right after, so it was okay. Mm. And it, I think also knowing that my agent I was not worried about telling my agent because it's like I love my agency and it's like they're called Victoria Leper Associates and it's an all-female run agency so they're all very supportive of each other and you know the main agent has got kids as well so I felt like they wouldn't be someone I was worried about telling and I think that can be a big thing for a lot of actors it's what is their agent going to say when they they know they're going to be out for that amount of time but actually I also did a lot of castings when I was pregnant so that was eye-opening as well because I hadn't really thought about doing mm. that. Mm. Well, it's great. Things have changed a bit. It's brilliant. So um, many writers listening will not feel that they have a clear idea about how the actual commissioning process works. Um, obviously, every broadcast is slightly different, but could you just give us a general idea of the process? Obviously, I've only got experience of ITV quite a long time ago yeah. and Radio 4 now. Radio 4 is probably the easiest one to talk about because that's what I know about that's your listeners may be interested in. Essentially, the commissioning editor doesn't really deal directly with writers. 
you what you need to do is find yourself a producer to work with because they then enter the program they need to be listed on a um a website of respected producers to make radio programs uh the bbc is quite easy to do anyone can do it you just have to get onto the radio for commissioning website and regi- register yourself as a company the reason they do this is because they need to know that somebody can actually deliver a program you know because there's an assumption that anybody can put a microphone you know, near a, an actor, which was absolutely not true. You need real skill and not just in terms of the technicalities of making a programme, but also in terms of editing and working with performers. And, you know, it's a huge skill, particularly as you've only got the voice and the written word and, you know, sound effects and music and stuff to to play with. You know, you're not, um, it's, it's tough medium. So the first thing a writer should do is find a producer and they can either go to the old in-house department, BBC Studios Audio, where there's a lot of producers, or they can go to one of the many companies like Giddy Goat or Positive, um, Absolutely. There's a whole load of them um, who who already deliver programmes to Radio 4. Or they can create their own package, register with Radio 4 and create their own show, really. And what happens is that once a year, um, the BBC will put out a brief a commissioning brief. It usually happens in January. So you look at the Radio 4 website, the various commissioning editors, comedy, drama, uh, art, science, whatever, will say what they're looking for and when they're looking, what the, what the dates are in terms of when things need to be delivered and what what um, the, which sort of year they're commissioning for. And then they quite often do a presentation, either online or in person, uh, which again you can go to, um, you can apply to go to. Uh, there's usually a deadline, and the first deadline is for 250 words. That's all you've got to do is create 250 words describing the project. Who's written it, who's going to be in it, who's making it, And then that goes in, that's called pre-offers, and that will go in. My successor, the wonderful Julia McKenzie, very experienced comedy producer, um, will will then, she will have told you what she's looking for. She'll then read the pre-offers, weed out the ones she thinks probably just, you know, whether they are too close to something you've already got or the talent, it's not realistic because people do put down, you know, Ricky Gervais wants to do this and you know for a fact that they haven't actually contacted Ricky Gervais. And then she'll invite them back in, the companies, and she'll go through the project then in greater detail. There's a, they ha- you have a meeting with her and she'll say, who who is writing this? Who, who do you think about putting, have you got a sample script? Have you, depending on the quality of the writer, there are certain writers you wouldn't, dare ask for a sample script quite rightly but for new writers sometimes you do need a bit of a sense of who who they are and what they might be able to write and then she'll go away and read them all and and sort of around about July I think sort of sort of submit her list of commissions so it's quite formal and you have to go through a production company or a producer to do it okay. I hope that's helpful no it's really helpful that's really helpful thank you so much because you know so many writers really they they just don't know how the system no, works no no i mean produ- uh, the relationship with the producer is a fantastically creative one yeah. mm. and i would always say that's the thing to do find yourself someone who gets you who understands your comedy and again listen to radio full programs the producer's name is often at the end of it and write to them email them say i loved this program then you've got something in common straight away because you know if you liked a sketch show that's quirky and whimsical or something then you may share a really interesting and specific sense of humor or if you liked something that was more dramatic or if you liked something that was um for example conversation of a long marriage was a wonderful script by jan etherington um 
is is a wonderful kind of marriage between two great actors, Joanna Lumley and Roger Allen, and her writing. But if you like that, the chances are the producer might be interested in seeing something that is sort of rather more literary, perhaps, than some of the other stuff that that, um, gets made, simply because it's about this exquisite piece of of writing that is dynamic and full of character and episodes that tell a story. And um, so it's worth sort of thinking, what's my taste? You know, what do I like? And then writing to those producers. And they love to be written to. They love it that you've heard their show. You know, so it's a good start. That's funny that, isn't it? Because people, you wouldn't think that producers would be interested in hearing from you that you like their show. But it's, I've always found that to be true. People Mm. are really pleased, aren't they? If you can honestly express some admiration for their work. Well, you make a bit of an effort then. Mm. You know, I think... The amount, quite a few people used to come and see me and it was very clear they'd never heard Radio 4. It's, as I say, it's a creative relationship. You know, working with a producer is one of the best things you can do. Mm. I'm so glad you said that because I feel like I would never have thought to do that and I do think sometimes people think it's such a closed shop but actually anyone can do that. Yeah. That's, you know, yeah, the I easiest mean, thing to do. So many new people came simply because they'd got in touch with a producer and like Sophie Willen, you know, we were one of the first people to have the privilege of having her on Radio 4, you know, and she'd she'd just got it. I, I can't remember how the relationship began, but I didn't know her work until the producer brought the, you know, her to me. And then I went to see her and, and of course, I was completely blown away. And but that was to do with a relation, very specific relationship between a producer and an actor, yeah. you know. So obviously we're um, we're all about the women writers at Female Pilot Club. Uh, and we still think that, you know, th- there's not enough female writers whose work gets made out there. Mm. I don't know if you agree, but we feel like um, that's why we've tried to shine a light. And yeah, I think it's look, exposure. it's still it's still I'm sure the percentage is still male dominated. But thank God it is better than it was. You know, I think that particularly on four, we had so many great women from Bridget Christie and Sophie and Mae Martin. And, and as I say, it's wonderful. Jan Etherington's in her 70s and still writing comedy for Radio 4, which, I, again, I loved the idea that it, it was an ageless thing. Um, but, yeah, we, I, I always tried to make sure that it, we were properly represented. And Sarah Kendall and, God, I mean, it was such a long list by the time I left, which was great. You know? Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Were you, did you see a lot of projects by female writers? Were you looking out for them? Definitely, yeah. Uh, I, and the truth is I didn't have to try very hard because there are so many funny women around. I didn't really I, – I said from the beginning that you had to have two women on every panel show. Because I said it's not hard anymore. You know, you should be able to get two funny women. There are brilliant comics out there. And Zoe Lyons started around about the time I was there. There was a whole load of them. Uh, And I said to all the producers, that's a given. You know, you have to do it. But truly, also, we were looking at all sorts of issues. Issues of diversity, disability, class. Class is a huge thing in comedy. So it wasn't just women, to be honest with you, important though that is mm. to make sure that women are heard and seen. And wonderful people like Kiri pritchard McLean started when I was there. But I, I think also outside London, issues of class and race um, are also very, very important. And disability. I used to work with a wonderful agent called Andrew Roach who introduced me to people like Lost Voice Guy um, and uh, Rosie Jones. We gave Rosie Jones a series before anyone else did, glad to say, um, because she was funny. And I mean, for me, it had to be because they were funny. Mm-hmm. I didn't really want 
box ticking. But I did say to the producers, come on, guys, you can extend your pool. You know, I'm not going to put somebody on just because they're a woman or just because they're a person of colour or just because they're disabled. They've got to be brilliant. And of course they were. They came up with this amazing group of people. But it was about extending the talent pool, having a broader range of stories to tell, mm. a broader range of experiences to, to capture, reflecting the audience back on itself. Because actually the Radio 4 audience is pretty big and diverse. It's not just middle class old people. And they, I, mean, I remember we had Mae Martin on at 11.30 in the morning talking about fantasising about having sex with Bette Midler on a stage. <laughs> and we didn't have a single complaint, not one. Because actually our audience are really adult and broad-minded and not that you have to be broad-minded, but I think you understand the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. Yeah. But it had to be the best of its kind. And it wasn't hard because there are really funny women out there mm. and really funny women writers. We've preempted our next question because I was about to say we've noticed that you did so much when you went back to Radio 4 um, to improve diversity of all kinds. So, you know, that certainly has been noticed. We've certainly noticed it um, with your commissions. And I was going to say... A, did you find that hard? But you've just, in a way, said that you did. You just had to put it out there. I think in it some wasn't ways. just me. To be fair, I think yeah. this, you know the comedy community has changed. Yeah. To be fair, I don't. You know, I'm not some sort of great saviour here. There was a a general feeling of being offered mm. a much broader range of people than perhaps my. You know, although Caroline Raphael, who was there before me, did a huge amount of work uh, to do this, uh, mm. I was very much standing on her shoulders here. Um, so I think I was very lucky that there was an explosion, if you like. Mm, the of, time was right. Yes. And yeah. People like Joe Lysett we had on because he was brilliant. Mm. Um, he was the only Brummy comedian we managed to get on. But, oh, no, that's not true, actually. We had Darren Harriet, who I adored. He was very funny, also a Brummy. Uh, Delisa Shaponda was so interesting because he had stories of Malawi and, mm. you know, the, 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 the clash between Malawi and culture and living in Manchester. But, again, it was, wasn't hard to commission these people. In a way, if you were going to give advice, I mean, I wasn't really thinking of Karen because Caroline was also, you know, great at finding Hugely important I was person. more thinking about, compared to TV, for instance, and, you know, uh, Radio 4 seems to have been a bit better than TV when it comes to... Do you know, it's really spending. difficult. I don't know because I haven't worked in TV for quite some time now and I'm not really sure what pressures they were under, for example, in, in BBC tellies. We didn't have very much to do with them. Um, Channel 4 seem to be able to have a, a pretty broad range of voices on. I think it's difficult for television because, ironically, radio ratings are much higher. Um, you know, that 6.30 show on Radio 4 is quite often listened to by a million and a half, two million people, whereas telly struggles to get 700,000 now for a lot of telly wow, shows. Really? Yeah. The, the language of television has changed. It's all about streaming now. The, the, the idea of live TV... The things that we used to do when I was at ITV where we would look at week on week on share and all that, I suspect has gone out the window now. It's all about streaming. It's all about how the iPlayer does. It's all about how sounds does. So the model, if you like, has changed so much that um, it, it's kind of more democratic in a way because it's about people, and particularly with radio, young people curate radio in a way that is very personal to themselves. So they'll download stuff and they'll be on the move when they're listening. More difficult to do that with telly. Today, I, th I would say the preference does seem to be in comedy to have writer performers. I think that's been a, a true since the fast show and Caroline Ahern really 
Um, it became much more difficult for writers, I think, uh, in the 90s. Why do you think there is that preference? Well, I think there was a certain fear on part of commissioning editors who people that made them laugh before the script came in. Um, they, they, I think they're, they're sometimes wrong about this. You know, just because you're a funny comic doesn't mean you can write mm. or a funny actor doesn't mean you can write. And I worry a bit about the rise of the sort of mildly amusing personal comedy drama that is kind of quite sweet but not particularly funny, slightly self-indulgent, drunken <laughs> behaviour kind of comedy. That bothers me a bit because I kind of... It, my taste is is probably more old-fashioned in that sense. I I was watching Reboot actually, was this wonderful new sitcom that's on Disney Plus about rebooting a sitcom which has just started. I'd highly recommend it. But it made me laugh so much because it's about sitcom, which of course nobody makes in Britain anymore. It, it almost entirely doesn't exist now. The Lee Mack show not going out is the only proper sitcom left there there are no shows made with audiences and Mm. the americans still do make these shows or they make shows that sound like sitcoms even if they don't have an audience like brooklyn 99 where there is a high gag rate or 30 rock or things like that we don't make those shows anymore uh, which i think is really sad and i think i miss them which is why i found myself looking at american shows with great writing and smart lines and and I worry a little bit about the self-indulgent comedy performer the ones that I when I think back at things that I've just loved in the last 10-20 years I do come back to writer-led things like Rev Detectorists I think is an exception because I think Mackenzie Crook happens to be rather a brilliant writer Um, but they are written in a much more sort of writerly way but that's my own personal prejudice and another reason why you can't be in a commissioning job for too long I think frankly. Mm. (laughs) Why do you think we don't make those big sitcoms anymore? I mean, people are always bemoaning it and saying, you know, why can't we? Well, it's cost. Uh, Also, many of the studios have closed. There are very few places you can make them now. We have very few people technically who can do them. We've got one or two vision mixers left, the great Barbara Hicks, very few cameramen. Tony Keane's retired, the Silver Fox, the great cameraman of sitcoms. Um, I think people are terrified of them. Channels are terrified of them. They won't let them grow. Americans are much more analytical about these things. They will make a pilot. They'll spend a lot of money on it. Then they'll analyse. I think the great example is uh, The Big Bang Theory, where they made a pilot, and the only characters who emerged from it were Sheldon and Penny. And then they said, well, those characters work. Let's think, where could they live? Who could they live with? And then they created the world around them. Same way as um, Seinfeld, the great Fred Barron, who did My Family. He was called in to say, we've got this show. We've got these geeky blokes. It's not working. He said, you need a woman. So he created Elaine. This is how they work. You know, they're more analytical. Then they have a room full of writers. They pay properly. They have careers as writers. It's a totally different structure. And we don't have that. If We never really had it. Um, But we had great authorial pieces and writers like David Renwick who were able to create characters like Victor Meldrew and and have the authority and the um, skill, if you like, to sustain it. But it's it's partly infrastructure, it's partly channels being terrified because if they don't hit straight away, and sitcoms take a long time to hit, you've got to get to know the characters, you've got to believe in the world. And also, we don't really have writers who are versed. There's no infrastructure. You used to be able to go from writing for things like Weekending or Carrots Lib um, and uh, sketch shows like Three of a Kind or Not the Nine O'Clock News, all these things that were big in the 70s and 80s. And then you'd progress to writing episodes of other shows like Hamilton and Jenkins did Shelley. 
the great Gail Renard, chair of the Writers Guild, worked on the Doctor series. And so you had a go. And in America, you know, you write an episode of The Simpsons or you would send a spec script for Frasier. All these things, it was an infrastructure for you to learn your craft. Mm. That has sort of gone now. And so you have single voices. Um, and sometimes it works really well just because people like Mackenzie Crook exist. And sometimes it's, you know, maybe a bit forgettable and perhaps one doesn't love it quite so much. But again, it's taste as well. You know, a lot of young people find the idea of a braying audience kind of rather unpleasant and they don't want to be told when to laugh. You know, they don't like... And yet, if you ask them if, the, if Friends has an audience, they'll probably tell you it doesn't, which is interesting. Yeah. And yet, they love the American sitcoms. They love them. They'll, they'll watch American shows. Like yeah. yeah, they won't indulge British shows. With the sitcoms, maybe you were talking about investing. I get there's a patience in that, isn't there? And I guess with viewing habits, people tend to binge, and just yeah. things are a lot quicker these days, aren't they? Yeah. And look, you know, I think I worked on Drop the Dead Donkey, you know, as, a, as an associate producer, and it was such good fun and great game on, which was great. Whether these stand up now, I don't know. Uh, it, it's difficult. It, times have changed so much. Mm. I mean, I loved working on Game On, written by a brilliant woman, writer called Bernadette Davis. Mm. Um, but I think, it, yeah, sensibilities have changed. Tone has changed. Mm. But what's interesting, though, is something like Reboot, which is a sitcom and it's full of great lines it's actually interestingly about the media as well which we're always told you should never do um and brooklyn 99 i think is another example they they the sound of it the using of smart comic lines to enhance character they always come from character they're always character-based lines but they understand that you need a sharply written line that is epi what's the word, epigrammatic, I think, and creates, pushes the story forward, makes you laugh, but also comes from character. That's still the absolute hallmark of American shows. We probably don't do that as much here, I don't think. It's funny you mention uh, that thing about you can't do things set in the industry. Yes. Because um, I was thinking it's proved wrong again and yeah. again and again. 30 it Rock. Was, well, I was about to say Hacks. Which and I Hacks is fantastic. love. Yeah. Love hacks. And couldn't be truer about that, what you're saying about the smart line. Oh, I mean, yeah. both as women, the lines are so smart, aren't Yeah, they? that's a great so show. Sharp. That's a wonderful show. I absolutely loved hacks. Um, you said there are no sitcoms. I mean, I don't want to hesitate to say this, but Mrs. Brown for Boys is still on, isn't it? Yeah. It, I, mean, I would say phenomenally... that's more of a panto. I mean, I, I'm not, it's not my bag, I'll be honest. But, but it I, is a sitcom, I, I defend it? its right to exist, yeah, you know, absolutely. because it's hugely popular. It is a sitcom in a very kind of exaggeration pantomimic way they break the fourth wall all the time it, it's it's kind of highly ironic that it, in that there's no realism in it I don't think so it's a certain kind of sitcom I agree like a kind of panto com mm. but if you if you think something like Frasier was the the apex of the great sitcom it's dramatic it's very satisfying emotionally as well as having the great lines and the great physical comedy. There's still an underpinning of rounded characterizations mm. with depth and it, you care, you really want Niles to get together mm. with Daphne. W Mrs. Brown's boys wouldn't even pretend uh, to do that. But I don't think even Brendan himself would say this mm. is a classic sitcom. They'd say... It's a kind of interesting hybrid. Mm. I suppose I was thinking of the technical stuff you were talking yeah, about. You know, absolutely. It, it's done in front of an audience. It must have those same. Yeah, Ben Kellett directs it, multi camera. Yeah, absolutely. So done in Glasgow, of course. Can it can be done, I suppose, is yes. is my point. 
Yeah, it can be done, but Teddington's closed, London Studios have closed, um, Capital has closed, all the places that I used to work do no, they don't exist anymore. Mm. So you have to go to Glasgow or possibly Pinewood. They used to do my family out in Pinewood. Um, but there are very few places left. So my dreams of the sitcom returning are probably ill-founded. Is that what you're telling me? I don't me? know. I'm sure somebody's going to crack it. But they're going to have to want to do it. A lot of writers just say, I'll do a mock documentary. It's easier. You know, or I'll do something which is a bit melancholy and a bit, a bit dramatic. You know, because I don't have to make people laugh. Mm. Is it chicken and egg, though? Or, yeah. Because is that what the commissioners are kind I of asking so. for? You know, yeah. they're asking for that personal experience, aren't they? Whatever you write, they say, well, is this from your personal experience? You know, they, there is that sense that they want... I'm sure that's true. I mean, we still do them on Radio 4 and uh, alone, which is a thing that... Um, uh, Murray Hunter writes for Angus Deaton and a wonderful cast of characters. That does really well and our audience adores it. Um, and that's got an audience. It's recorded in front of an audience. And we still have a few that, that use that dynamic. It's the same, though, you know, with sketch shows, how they don't want to make them anymore. And the, the things like Big Train, they were so amazingly successful. Well, I'm not sure it was at the time, actually. You know, I think we were, it was, um, and it was quite strange, Big Train at the time, because we just had the fast show, mm. which was very, which was brilliant. I love the fast show. But it, big characters and, um, again, quite broad. Not always. Uh, Graham and Arthur wrote, um, who wrote Big Train, also wrote Ted and Ralph in... Uh, the fast show but they were trying to do something that was kind of surreal and slightly weird and so it was a BBC Two show Mm -hmm. but I think it's one of those shows that's kind of got more successful in later years because of the talent it spawned people like Simon Pegg and um, a lot of writers uh, a lot of actors that became Julia Davis and Amelia Bullmore yeah I I don't know that I think the sketch show is a fantastic training ground for writers and but it's true there's not an appetite for it in quite the same way as there used to be I always think those things are cyclical that I can remember like in my career times when sketch shows were all the rage and then impressionist shows were all the rage and then stand-up shows were all the rage and you know they sort of come round again I think I'm sure that's true I think they'll come round again Mm. Needs, uh, I hope so. Yeah. I, I, just, no, I, I used to watch so. Smack the Pony on repeat. I just love it. Oh, and that was an incredibly important show for women writers. So what would you like to say to new writers, new female writers starting out now? What would your be, be your best advice? Well, give them? it a go would be the first one. You know, you deserve to be there. Don't think that you don't deserve to be there because you're a woman. Your your comedy's as good as anybody else's and go for it. Yeah. Um, listen to lots of comedy. Uh, watch lots of comedy, become a comedy nerd if you can, uh, because it, it the rhythms of it sort of, you'll soak them up, mm. you know. But write what you care about passionately. Write what you think is funny, not what someone else thinks is funny. I think that's the key thing. Write what makes you laugh. Um, and, and that will change um, as the generations go by. And there's definitely an old bag element in me, you know, who belongs to a slightly different generation. And perhaps, you know, I need to get with the kids, daddy-o sometimes. Because sometimes you just, like when Big Train came along, a lot of people thought, oh, I don't know what that is. We thought it was hilarious. But mm. the old generation probably didn't. So I think people, I mean, I'm not a commissioning editor anymore, but were I commissioning editor, I would consider it my duty to try and watch things I don't quite understand. And I definitely commissioned things I didn't quite get thinking I know this is funny now I remember there's a great story about um, 
Jeffrey Perkins taking, they did a brilliant plot of a uh, pilot of Hitchhikers, which is one of the best pilots I've ever heard. Uh, Simon Brett produced it, but he w- had left the BBC to pursue his career as a writer. And so Jeffrey Perkins took it to whatever it was those days. And the, these chaps that he went to had been in the war, I think, and they were kind of so much older. And they were utterly baffled by it. And they just said to him, and they listened to it mono as well, because it was the first stereo comedy <laughs> recording. And so he had to sort of make them listen to it again. But they said, we don't really get this, but is it funny? And he said, yes, it really is. And they said, make it. And I think you have to be able to, when you get to my age, you have to be able to say that. I don't get it, but I can see a lot of other people do, so just do it. Um, so I think as a young person, you may find people like me who don't quite get it, but just keep going. You know, if you like it, make it. So, Sean, you're also now writing novels as well as everything else. Can you tell us a bit about that and, and how did you get started? About when I turned 50, I think, I decided that I'd give it a go. My father was a writer and my husband's a writer and I'd always sort of journaled, you know, and um, done all those things, writing diaries and stuff. And I just started writing idly about these three women um, and how they met and they met in a cafe and everything and there was a bit and it was they were sort of diary entries and anyway I just sent it off to a publisher in Wales called Alolva which is the publisher used to work for my dad you know had done about 20 years previously and just sent it in to their information thing you know saying would you be interested in reading this and they came back and said yes so they published the first book and it was Raja Khumri um, broadcast it and it did really really well and then I did um, a prequel to it with the characters when they were at university um, which also did really well and I've and then the the there's another one which is another set of characters um, and I've now written a kind of sequel to that so there's, there's like two two sets of writing I can't can't express this very clearly, but anyway, they're kind of funny satirical books, really. And the new one is set on a Tuscan, no, an Umbrian holiday, uh, where these characters go on their holiday, and they don't really notice that all the things that we worry about in Wales, like second homes and um, you know that sort of slightly exploitative behaviour, perhaps they might be doing in Umbria themselves. Uh, where there are ghost villages and the same problems. So it's a sort of satirical piece. Sounds really good. And can we get them in English? Or I have just translated the first one and um, my agent, Charlie Campbell, um, w- w- is open to offers, I'm sure. Um, I- I've, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I've got a voice in English. It's English is my second language. Welsh is my first. And I've definitely got a very clear sound, if you like. But in English, I don't know. Time will tell. Time will tell. But the subject matter and the themes sound really interesting and different. I mean, I'm sure there'd be a market for that. Oh, maybe. I mean, the first, the, the, the one set of characters, which is the three women who only kind of get to know each other because they happen to coincide at a cafe. One's a vicar's wife. One's a sort of um, high-powered solicitor who only eats kind of green food and uh, has self-help books, which I very much enjoyed creating. One was um, Find Your Inner Sat-Nav was my favourite and um, really worrying things I had to then Google to check these things didn't actually exist <laughs> find your inner sat nav does not exist oh I was going to say it's no. something that would exist <laughs> absolutely but um, and then the third one is a mother who's got sort of teenager and, an, and a three year old by mistake as it were and her life is just you know agony because she can't 
Um, and her house is falling to bits and, and um, nobody knows where the radiator key is to bleed the radiator. So the house is freezing and um, she's got a grumpy husband and um, she has fantasies about the man who comes to tune the piano. And um, and, and in fact, that, that one is set in Wales and she's also a Welsh learner and her, her children go to Welsh medium schools, which is what I went to. And uh, so there's a bit of that going on as well, um, sort of the sense of being someone who's immersed in another culture. And um, But yeah, I, I'm, and then the fourth one is coming out next summer um, in time for the Nationalist Deathwood, I think. so. Oh, I um, think those characters sound amazing. I think that would definitely have broad appeal. Definitely. <laughs> well, have you thought spread about, the word. What about the television adaptation? Well, funnily or? enough, Working Title did in fact option the first one, um, but they didn't do anything. And a lesson has been learned that being optioned doesn't necessarily mean anybody will do it. It might just be taken out of the market really, for a while. Really, I, I didn't know. know that. I was a bit naive. <laughs> Um, but they didn't really do anything with it, so it has become available again. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it, it, publishing is a really tough world at the moment, and um, perhaps if I went on I'm a Celebrity or something, then um, my face needs to be better known, I think, perhaps, to... All you need to do is eat kangaroo testicles. <sighs> yes, apparently. I, I, you and know, earn £400,000. No, no amount of money for a book would ever induce me to do I the things they do don't. on that show. It's, I'm sorry, I'd love to, but no. It's, it, I could never do it in a million years. But, um, yeah, I think it's a tough... Marketing is even... Budget and marketing and publishing is even tougher than, than telly at the moment. Well, we hope you'll get uh, that adaptation written, Sean, and then maybe we can do a reading of it at Female Pilot Club. OK, so you are now, of course, in the Female Pilot Club, which Thank is very you. exclusive. We, we don't just let anyone in. <laughs> we let everyone in. Everyone. Literally, my aunt is in it, my cousin's in it. Well, I'm very, very privileged and glad to be here. Good. So we were wondering, what other great women of comedy would you like to nominate for membership? It can be a writer, a producer or stand-up, anybody in the field of comedy whose only crime is a lumpy jumper. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, there are so many people like Victoria Wood, who was my great heroine, and I had the privilege of knowing a little. But I think possibly the oldest women, right, I'm sparing her blushes now, but I love the fact that Jan Etherington, who I think is in her 70s, is still writing brilliant comedy for Radio 4. So I'd like to nominate Jan Etherington, I think. Great um, nomination. I think it's just brilliant that you can still be doing it and being brilliant and funny and having Joanna Lumley tell your jokes. It's the dream, really, isn't it? it is. She's living the dream. It is. Brilliant. That's a great nomination. Thank you so much. Well, that sound means it's time for us to swill out our biffy tins, zip up our grow bags and prepare to lose some angels. But we'll be back to take another female pilot well out of their comfort zone to talk about their unbelievable sins in the comedy industry. Wins, Kay. I know what I mean, Emily. Thanks so much to our wonderful guest, Sean William, and goodbye from Female Pilot Club. Goodbye. Goodbye. Why not follow us at Female Pilot Club on Twitter and Insta? The script was written by Kay Stonham and the show was produced by Emily Chase and Kay Stonham. It was edited and technically produced by Adam Bromley with music composed by Tim Sutton. If you enjoyed the show, please do like, subscribe, share and review. Until next time, up, up and away. You could always